Hi guys, this is Doug Fletcher. Welcome back to What's the Hazard. It is Friday, December 4th. It is the 21st birthday of my youngest son, in fact, and so uh, hopefully he's home studying for finals, but I guess we'll, we'll find out when I get home. Um, my guest today, thank you guys for being with me. My guests today are, this is, a little, oh, this is probably the first research discussion that I've had on the program. Dr. Terry Stentz and Dr. Kelly Herstein with, um, well, University of Nebraska-Lincoln College of Engineering and UNMC Public Health. Um, thank you for joining me, guys. I appreciate it. I know that, uh, yeah. Kelly, you're, you have been, uh, you drew the short straw. You're going to speak first, but Terry and I have known each other for quite a long time, in fact. Um, I, th- I was thinking about it on the drive over, Terry. I think you and I actually met in Dave Cochran's office. I was down, when I was with OSHA, I was um, down in Lincoln to speak to one of his classes, and you and he were colleagues or maybe still are. I don't. I think Dave retired at some point, if I'm not mistaken. But, but um, I think we met in his office, and then had an opportunity to to work together. On it. I spoke with a few of your classes about OSHA things, and and uh, we've we've known each other ever since, and have a number of common friends and colleagues. So, now you're not going to believe this, but but uh, that was more than 25 years ago. Is that right? Oh my God! <laughs> so, and Kelly just told me that I I spoke to. Uh, she was in one of the classes that I spoke with, one of your classes, probably construction management or industrial hygiene or ergonomics, something just about OSHA. And she actually decided to stick it out and stay in the field, which is impressive to me. So you must have had a very positive influence on her. Well, actually, she was infected. <laughs> right, exactly, no doubt. Well, thank you both for joining me. I appreciate it. Uh, I, th- I find this stuff fascinating. Terry, you sent me just a sample of some of the research you guys are doing right now, and, and it is really interesting. I think we'll hopefully have an opportunity to talk about a few of the projects. But, Kelly, if you wouldn't mind, one thing that I don't necessarily understand very well is the correlation between the UNL College of Engineering and the UNMC College of Public Health. You were both faculty in both of those colleges, and is there is there a relationship between the two somehow that that is not obvious to me, or is this just purely that you are interested in both of these fields and you happen to be on both faculty? How, how does that work? Is there? You know, it started that way that we are interested in both. Um, I have my background in industrial engineering and met Terry taking that safety class. Well, he was um, helping me with my master's thesis and he said, you really need to take this construction safety class. So um, that's kind of where I was introduced to construction safety, but I've always been interested in that. And so then I started taking courses at the College of Public Health, where Terry was also faculty there. Um, but now as it's grown, we've started to see how engineering and public health are really intertwined mm-hmm. and work together very well. And so that relationship is growing and expanding. Okay. So so there is a there is a correlation. There is some common ground between the two in the projects that you're working on. Absolutely. Okay. Very interesting. Absolutely. And, and we have graduate students from the College of Public Health in the construction uh, site safety course this semester. Oh, very they good. Just finished up. And so we're beginning to see graduate students go back and forth. And um, Kelly and I are the only two uh, engineering college faculty that have MPH degrees. Interesting. And we're starting to, you know, make our inroads and to say, look, engineers, look, construction managers, 
there's a huge field here and it's very important and it really needs engineering and it really needs technical management folks. Right. Very interesting. Because public yes. health has seen that for years, but sometimes convincing engineers is a little harder approach. Absolutely. Uh, Shannon um, Bartlett Hunt over in civil engineering, who's chair of the department, is someone who works with the College of Public Health in water quality issues. Okay. So there's definitely a connection with civil engineering, and there's definitely a connection with the Durham School of Architectural Engineering and Construction. That's very the interesting. Other disciplines, to me. Uh, not so much right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like we also have Josephine Lau. She is faculty in a. Um, architectural engineering school, but she is also courtesy faculty at UNMC. She does a lot of research in HVAC and air quality. Fantastic. So little by little, 20 years ago, when I did this, when I finished my MPH degree, 20 years ago, good grief. (laughs) um, You know, I would talk about that and really Dave Cochran and Mike Riley were the only two who really kind of understood it. Everybody else was like, what kind of a weirdo are you? Mm -hmm. Not so much anymore. Absolutely. Coming around. Really interesting. Oh, man, I, I have a particular interest in the air quality ventilation issues myself. I, so when I do finally retire from this consulting gig, as Kelly incurred, I think I'm going to come back and take some of that free college money and go back to school. I would love to, I would love to learn more about that. And it's, uh, and it's such a broad, interesting field to me that um, you know, I'd be interested to be a part of that. Maybe I can speak with her at some point. We'd love to do a recruiting Zoom with you. Oh, absolutely. Could we? Yeah, we yeah. Can, we'll hook you real easy. We've got all kinds of ideas that will be attractive to you. Oh, fantastic. Never, never too late to be a graduate student. I hope not. I, I hope not. That is my intention. Um, having said that, I would be interested if you would share with me a little bit about, I know that you guys, you do research, obviously. You teach. Terry, you are mentoring graduate students. Kelly, you're probably doing that now. Are you, you, are you taking on graduate students as well? Yes. Yes, I am now. Fantastic. Oh, that's excellent. So what, I mean, you do all of those things. You teach, you do research, you mentor. Um, do you have a preference? Is there one, one thing that you enjoy more than, maybe not that you dislike the others, but something that you're particularly gratified by? You know, I think mentoring students is the the one that you get the most gratification. You get to see them start as um, a novice and then watch them grow into an expert and then watch them in their career. And I've only advised a few. And so I'm, I'm on that newer path. Terry's um, had quite a few more than I have, but it's so, um, I don't know. It, it's, it is gratifying to to want to help someone through the process, but the whole job is fun. Um, mm-hmm. It's a really a labor of love, and um, it, it's it's the best job in the world, I think. I bet it is, Terry. What about you? What I mean, you have been doing this a little bit longer than Kelly, and you've probably put a number more graduate students. You've graduated many more, mentored many more. Is that? I mean, I'm sure the research is still driving most of it, but is that the part that you enjoy most, or what? What is it about your work that you I would have to agree with Kelly. I think mentoring students and working with students directly and seeing them grow and develop and graduate, you know, we're kind of in the business of star throwing. Mm -hmm. Each one of these young people, and sometimes they're older, it doesn't matter. And we've gotten a lot of people coming back to school too and refreshing their education. We throw the stars. We never know where they land. And sometimes like Corey Sinek, they come back to us and say, here's where I'm at. And I remember this. And I'm really grateful for that. And every time that happens, 
it's just worth its weight in gold. There's just no way to describe how that feels I'll bet. as a college teacher and a mentor. Mm-hmm. Well, just to, to leave a legacy at all, I think, you know, that regardless of the career path we've chosen, I think we all want to leave some type of a legacy. And you have the, um, I think, probably unique uh, ability to not only impact research and the science, you know, what we're, what we're learning, what we're doing, but also, you know, the people that are going to be doing that in the next generation. That's, that's pretty significant. I'm, I'm uh, envious. We think there's kind of a personality profile for this. And um, people who are in safety, ergonomics, industrial hygiene, public health, they're sort of the do-gooder variety. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're not interested in helping people, protecting people, doing the right thing the right way, uh, making things turn out the way they should without, without problems, without harm, that's your kind of ilk. Those mm-hmm. kinds of folks are special. And if you fall into that set of values, this is the field for you. I, I would agree. That's fantastic. That's a great description of it, actually. And I don't know, I, you, you, know you, you can uh, describe your background and how you came to the field, but I, I stumbled into occupational safety and health. I started off as a biochemist. I was in graduate school studying biochemistry and uh, left graduate school and got a job as an entry-level industrial hygienist just simply because of you know, my science background, they were looking for someone with a chemistry background. And so I just stumbled into it, but it has been an incredibly gratifying profession. I absolutely love the work that we do. And, you know, as you said, the opportunity to help people, work with people, coach people, it really is fantastic. So are people coming to, I mean, they come directly to the profession or the, or the, um, the, uh, the career path intentionally now it's not they're not stumbling into it like like i did no they are coming into it intentionally yeah we get both we get the stumblers and we get the intentionals <laughs> that's fantastic i want to say one thing doug you know you talked about how you got started in this i got started in it as a boy scout uh, one of the required merit badges for eagle scout was public health and at 13 years old i had no idea what public health was but that was a way to and then you had to get the safety merit badge mm-hmm safety, firemanship, and public health. And that kind of lit my fire. And then later on in the Navy on active duty, one of my collateral duties was the, um, in my squadron was a maintenance safety officer. So I got involved with Naval aviation safety, which is real critical stuff, Mm -hmm. really dangerous environment. And that just really kind of stayed with me. So you've done this your entire, I was going to say adult life since your adolescence, practically. Pretty much. That's, that's fantastic. That's incredible. But it is, you know, like you said, it is really uh, a career that is specific to that particular temperament, that mindset, you know, that kind of that helping mindset, as you said, do-gooder. Um, I would agree. I think the people that really flourish in this career have that basic mindset. Um, I would I would like to talk about some of your research. As I said, you sent me some some of the things that you guys are working on right now. Would you mind, just first, before we get into some of the specific projects, talk a little bit about the life cycle of a project. You know, how do you come up with these ideas? I'm reading through some of these things, and I'm, I'm, I'm just amazed at some of, the, some of the things that you are working on. How, how do you get an idea? How does it come to you? How do you fund these projects, you know, et cetera? How, how does that happen? Well, as I say, there's a variety of 
different ways that that this happens. So sometimes it's something that we dream up. And when that happens, that means that we need to start with some type of pilot study. Um, you can't just go out and ask for money on something that you're on a whim. Mm-hmm. Um, university has seed money for that. Or sometimes we can talk to industry or sometimes we just have to pay for it out of our own pocket to build what that idea is. There's requests for proposals that are out. So there's major government funding agencies like NIOSH, CDC, um, that will ask for certain research projects. Those can be tricky to get to. Um, We work in research teams mostly. And so we will look at each other's interests and try and think of things that we can do together that we think that society would find beneficial. And usually if it's something that's going to affect society, there's money out there for it. So that's interesting. So you are writing, uh, you're responding to these RFPs, you're writing grant proposals, perhaps you're going out to industry looking for monies, uh, maybe in an area that would be germane to what they what they do or um, so it's all across. The, I love the idea of just do you wake up and scribble things down in the middle of the night when you have an idea that comes to you or those kind of things as well. Yeah. And you know, it's it's nowhere near 100% hit rate. You know, there's a lot of things that are just didn't work out for us. And so things hit and things miss. And so you just have to keep persevering and keep thinking of new ideas and eventually Mm -hmm. something sticks. Okay. And then, so, so you've got an idea, you've done a pilot, seems to be reasonable. You've gotten some, some feedback that looks like it's worth pursuing. And maybe you've, now you've found some funding. Um, You are doing research on sites. I mean, some of the stuff that you're doing must be performed on a job site, it looks like, or in the laboratory, or maybe a combination of both. How are you actually doing the research? There's a number of different research, I guess you could say, contexts. Sometimes it's field research where you actually do the research while the activity is actually happening. Mm -hmm. Those are very naturalistic studies or quasi-experimental. You can't control the environment. All you can do is take measurements Mm-hmm. observations, physical measurements, that kind of thing, and then try to analyze, interpret what this means. And uh, another way to do this is, is laboratory experimentation, where you actually set up a controlled experiment in a controlled context, and then you you run a protocol, and you take data to try to analyze and answer questions. Um, there's lots of other types of research. Uh, sometimes you can do a controlled experiment in the field, Sometimes you can mock up something that is like a field experiment in, in the real world, but, but it's actually something you built or you created. For instance, our, our research in, in roofing and in roofing falls requires building apparatus that is a roof out in a big parking lot. Mm-hmm. And you run an experiment with that and you try to recreate what's done actually in the field, but in a semi-controlled way. You know, when Kelly was talking about funding, Funding uh, anymore um, is, is quite erratic. There's lots of different sources. And um, it seems like the, the government funds that are available each year get to be a little bit less. And there's more and more researchers chasing fewer and fewer dollars. So we're trying to get um, industry organizations and individual companies to fund some of that research. And some of them are very amenable to this and very cooperative and like to collaborate Others um, are, are not so interested in it. So we have an educating job to do too. Um, our job as researchers is to come up with the right questions to address the right problems. And that can be done two different ways. It can be inductive approach or deductive approach. You can go out there and observe what's going on and say, that's a problem. 
that's a problem, that's a problem. How can we analyze that to tell you what's really going on and make a good recommendation of how to close on that problem? Another way to do it is to, you know, like you say, dream up some theory or idea and then uh, attempt either experimentally or quasi-experimentally to um, address that problem and provide analysis. And we play this game both ways mm -hmm. all the time. Mm -hmm. And sometimes these things are driven by our ideas. At other times, we're tasked with that from outside entities, like the Stratcom project we did a couple of years ago. Right. So we're prepared to do any of those approaches. And if we think it's the wrong approach, we'll say so. Mm -hmm. There's That's kind of a mindset to this. We're trained to be researchers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, sometimes our graduate students that come in, we're starting to have more graduate students that are non-traditional students who've been in industry for a number of years, and they come in with problems that they're facing in their workplace, and we help them solve those. And we're able to form graduate credit courses where they're solving these problems with industry and us, and it seems to work pretty well, too. Oh, I love that approach. Yeah, that's very interesting to me. In fact, you know, much of what I do is, um, you know, I spend most of my time out in workplaces. Uh, probably over the last 30 years, I, I couldn't even guess. Maybe I've been in thousands of workplaces, I would assume. And there are always, particularly on the industrial hygiene side, at least from my perspective, there are always interesting questions that I, that may have been answered. I don't have the answers to them necessarily. And I, you know, I don't do a lot of, I don't spend a lot of time in the literature, probably not as much as I should perhaps, but it seems like there are a lot of interesting questions that would come in with those non-traditional students. You know, Doug, sometimes in workplaces, they know stuff is going on that they don't like and is not doing what it should, and they can't seem to formulate the question. Mm -hmm. So we can help with that, too. We go in and, like you do and take a look around and say, we understand, we see what you're talking about, and here's the question that needs to be answered. Yes. And oftentimes that helps them converge on that and focus so that we really can do a reasonable analysis and come up with some set of solutions they can pick from. Yes, that's fantastic. I love that because you're right. That that may be the hardest part is to actually formulate the question. You know there is an issue or you have a concern about something or even just a feeling about something. Um, you know, even even just from, a, from an industrial hygiene standpoint, you know, low-level exposures, you know, these sub-PEL exposures that, they, they obviously have an impact and effect, you know, and, um, it, but it's a difficult thing to identify or quantify necessarily. And, you know, those things are always challenging. I, I think asking the right question is probably the biggest part of this, it sounds like. Both of us as industrial engineers are adherents to total quality management, the Deming principles. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes the problem involves not understand, really understanding the process. Mm. What is the objective and what is the process? And is the process really going to provide you with the objective you really want? And do you understand all the components of that process? Once they get that idea, it's sort of like Katie bar the door. Mm -hmm. They'll drive right towards where they need to be. Interesting. And safety already uh, safety and, and IH always plays into these industry problems. Interesting. There's no way to ignore it. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. That's really interesting. Um, I um, am not trained in Deming approach or the philosophy, but I certainly have been exposed to it, understand it to some degree. I, I've been doing a leadership series with a friend of mine who is a, 
an Air Force guy, actually. He is kind of a leadership process improvement expert. And um, as he and I have been speaking over the last few months, I, I've learned a lot more about it. It's really fascinating stuff. And I agree with you. It's, it always, always boils down to the process, it seems. And the other thing that Deming is totally against is blaming the workers. Oftentimes in safety and ergonomics problems, the easy thing is to say it's the workers' fault. Sure. It's the workers' problem. And you know, it's we have to we have to be psychologists and turn that around and say, wait a minute here, let's really take this apart. And uh, oftentimes we know that it's not the workers' fault. There are lots of other things that play into this system that produce the, the, the undesirable result. Mm-hmm. Maybe the worker is just one small part of that. Absolutely. But there's a dozen other components that have a lot of effect on things. Mm-hmm. And that's our job is to tease those apart. That's really interesting. Analyze too. those and show where this is coming from and then convince whoever makes the decisions that this is a valid approach. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. And we'll, we'll hang with you to make sure it gets done right and be there when you find success that's the consultant's dilemma. You've got to be able to stay with them with the process. Right. Most definitely. Interesting. Well, so let me, so in a traditional graduate setting in the, in the program that I was in, uh, the objective was to, to analyze a problem, um, and, uh, generate some, uh, some, I, I guess some statistical evidence to support or maybe disprove your, your, your initial hypothesis and then publish that information in one of these traditional journals. But your information are now, so you're publishing some of this, I would assume. There are publications that you're, you're writing papers and publishing, but much of this information is designed to be utilized by a, an entity, perhaps, someone who was driving the initial question, maybe. So you guys are kind of, what are you doing with the information you know, the conclusions that you come up with? We're publishing them. Okay. Um, so some of these conclusions, they can be expanded to a more broad audience. Um, sometimes when they're more pinpointed, if the company allows, and they usually do, uh, sometimes we just remove identifiers and we'll publish in conference proceedings. It's a little bit more appropriate place. But other times we, do, we use statistical analysis as one of our tools. There's a lot of other tools that we use to analyze the data that comes in, whether it be quantitative or qualitative. Uh, and so publishing into those traditional journals is, is another means. Interesting. So let's, let's talk a little bit about some of this research. I, you know, I don't, I don't think we can avoid the topic of COVID. I know that you, as public health professionals, uh, are involved in some COVID-related research. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the research that you're involved in that might, might be immediate, might have that imminent COVID um, flavor to it? Well, we talk about a couple of projects, one with the U.S. Air Force at Offutt, and the Charleston base, Joint Command base in South Carolina, and then a, a, a project with um, with UNMC, the Hospital Biocontainment Unit. Mm-hmm. So the Biocontainment Unit, UNMC, is a is a world leader, and of course that all got started with SARS and Ebola, and of mm-hmm. course it plays over into the COVID nineteen crisis. We were asked uh, as IEs and ergonomics and safety specialists to work with their research team to help validate some of the things that are um, part of the system of a biocontainment unit. So we cover things like safety, body core temperature, ergonomics, 
um, ease of use, um, safety hazards, things like that. So we've done some done some research using body core temperature measurements to find out what the body core temperature changes are in clinicians who are all suited up in a mm-hmm. full PPE apparatus with a papper and everything. They go in and they work for long periods of time inside of a biocontainment unit and their body core temperature goes up. Mm-hmm. And of course that plays into fatigue. It plays into a loss of water, body, body's water balance. It plays into decision-making. You know, if you're really hot and you, you, you're not comfortable, you have trouble making decisions and some types of PPE are more cooling than others. And so this is a way to test that physiologically. So we've, we've done a series of those studies. In fact, we're just now editing the paper that's going to be uh, submitted for publication for that work with the UNMC biocontainment unit. And so, of course, this is the pill that you swallow and you wear a, you wear a transmitter on your belt, and then it transmits real-time data back to a data collection device outside the biocontainment unit. So we're working to perfect what types of PPE are the best to keep clinicians cooler nice. when they have to be inside of a biocontainment unit. Mm-hmm. That's the interesting. second project we worked on. Well, can I ask you a question about that? So you are specifically interested in evaluating PPE choices for those biocontainment um, employees, those workers. Are you also then coming up with criteria that you can use to, like, red flag someone saying they have reached a point where they need to be um, excused from the biocontainment area for a period of time to recover? Or are we using that information for other like milestones like that as well, or primarily for the PPE assessment? Well, the physicians and nurses on that research team know very well what they're looking at when the data starts coming through. And we've, we've had subjects get up there to where it's like, we need to pull them out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They know that. So that's how they, they incorporate that. Interesting. Ours is the technical part. Theirs is the clinical part. And they really know their part well. Absolutely. That's interesting. And then yeah, what, and I, they, I, they I, know to self-identify if they're feeling, you know, the effects of maybe a, a heat-related event. Um, but in the times of COVID and there's very few healthcare workers that are dealing with a lot of patients um, that that could become a major issue. Um, when they're wearing the full PPE with the hood and the papper, you can't just take that off and get a drink of water. Now you've contaminated yourself. And so going in a shift for four hours, and we when we looked at the study, we did four hours, but these healthcare workers are likely doing more depending on patient volume. So if they take that hood off, they've contaminated themselves and can't get a drink. So mm-hmm. it's, it is a major issue. Are they using, do they use camelbacks and things in there? I mean, can they use some type of a camelback or something so that they have a water source with them so they don't have to remove their PPE or how do they, how do they do that? Are they catheterizing themselves so they can, I mean, they can. You know, Doug, we've identified these issues and that's going to, those are going to be follow on projects. Right now, we're constrained at UNMC because of the huge COVID caseload. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So all this research has slowed some because we're trying to handle patients. Right. So First it'll it'll speed up. And the things you're asking about are, are future experiments to see what we can do mm-hmm. to mitigate that. We also have to remember that UNMC um, went over to Africa uh, to work with uh, Ebola patients and to provide clinical treatment there. Imagine wearing full PPE with a PAPR in a, an arid, hot environment. I mean, this is much more complicated in the field than it yeah. is inside of a hospital. 
Mm-hmm. So those were concerns too with this research about body core temperature and physiological response of clinicians. And so are you able then to draw some conclusions about um, core temperature, fatigue, the correlation between the core temperature, fatigue, and then the decision-making that you mentioned earlier, you were talking about at that point, at some point you reach a fatigue level or a core temperature um, where you are making bad decisions, and can that somehow, I mean, just fatigue in general, can we, can we make statements about just any workplace fatigue level where you are beyond a certain point, we know that we're going to increase the number of incidents or undesirable incidents or something, or are we... Kelly, talk about the STRATCOM C-17 airborne biocontainment because we did attempt to measure decision-making and fatigue on that little routine. We did. Um, So when when we did the airborne project, we had healthcare workers in full PPE that were inside of the transport isolation unit, which is on board of a C-17. So it's basically a mobile hospital that's in plastic um, so that patients could be transported and then the entire TIS offboarded and then the plane wouldn't be, the aircraft would not be contaminated. Um, so we were sampling the healthcare workers at different intervals throughout the flight, um, doing a psychometric vigilance test that's similar to what pilots would use um, that has been accepted for years with NASA and the Air Force. Um, but we did see that over time, and we were not testing body core temperature at that time, but just looking at doing a self-assessment of how they were feeling in the psychometric vigilance testing, there, there was a, a bit of a decline. We also monitored heart rate, but what you're, what you're asking about are establishing boundaries of human performance, mm-hmm. human safe performance. We are moving in that direction, but we have a lot of experimentation to do to find out in the field how that works. That's interesting. Both hospital and airborne. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Um, and all of our sample sets have been small because to get any type of good statistical data, you need large sample sets. And we just haven't been able to get those large samples. And so any anything that we've, conclusions that we've drawn from what we've learned have always had the asterisk that we need to study more. We need to learn more. Sure. Absolutely. There's likely some mm-hmm. variability in there that has to be accounted for with more or study. The usual question is, so they need to pay for more. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I was reading through some of, some of the projects that you're working on. You mentioned earlier, Terry, some of the fall-related issues, certainly as a former OSHA person and basically as just a grunt safety and health person, falls have always been an interesting and challenging issue. So you're looking at some robotic approaches to reducing these risks, it appears, Um Reducing the need for ladders and scaffolds, that's something that I find interesting because I think ladders are incredibly dangerous. Um, I can't, I couldn't even count how many accidents or fatalities that we investigated while I was with OSHA, people falling from ladders. I mean, large numbers. Those are interesting to me. But here's the one that was interesting to me, and I'm going I'm to have to read it for you. Iron worker posture and movement stability using virtual reality simulated heights and induced fear physiological responses. That one is interesting to me because I cannot even watch the YouTube videos of those guys climbing towers or things without getting noticeably, um, first, I I guess fear would be a description of it, but I have a physiological response to even watching that in two dimensions. What's going on with that one? Uh, Normal human response, you know, the approach, uh, you know, the, the fear response 
And with the virtual reality, these these are a series of experiments now that have been published. They just got approved for publishing. Oh, nice. Where we set up a laboratory with the, the VR monitor on the, mm-hmm. the head, and we simulated, uh, and this is a, a doctoral dissertation, simulated being at heights and being an iron worker. And if you had this on and looked around, you you were up on a beam three stories up. And it really felt like that. Oh, my. And, you know, you'd start to sweat. Your heart would race. <laughs> We even had some human subjects who refused to continue. Once we put this on and virtually took them up to height, they said, I'm done. I'm, I'm, I don't want to mess with this. Is that right? Yeah. And, and these are iron subjects. workers? No, we used a naive subject. Okay. <laughs> oh, my God. We've used some iron workers in some of these tests, but it hasn't been with virtual reality. Mm-hmm. We've done some wireless gate analysis with and movement analysis with, with real iron workers. Mm-hmm. And incidentally, those those are hard-headed guys. You yes, know, they are. They need to a laboratory and want to do tests with them. Uh, you've got to do some real powerful convincing. <laughs> are you pulling guys out of the local 21 here in town that are? We're pulling them out of Omaha. Are you? The local in Omaha. I, and Corey, Corey Lyons from Davis Erection has mm-hmm. been, as, as a formal gra- former graduate student, has been very collaborative in this research. Interesting. Uh, with with industry and management, as well as the local ironworker unions. Yeah. I mean, these guys are just loaded down with gear, too. They're just, oh yeah. you know, once and you put on that harness and that tool belt and all of those spuds and everything, man, I, I can't imagine what you feel like at the end of the day, which is why they all look like, and no disrespect intended, but they kind of look like gorillas to some degree. Um, I don't know how, where they get the balance, but, man, they are big, thick guys generally. We had a graduate student that looked at um, how they position their tools on their tool belt. What would be the ideal position for mm-hmm. that? Um, that was an interesting project, and I hadn't I hadn't actually held some of the tools that they used before and held up that tool belt. And it's fun to take to class and um, have Corey come to class, and he'll put a tool belt on these kids and just watch them just oh, swing yeah. down because it's so heavy. And were you actually able to draw some conclusions from that? You were able to to come up with some type of a, 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 a more. Oh yeah. Yes. And it was very conclusive. And one of the reasons for doing this and why the local and, and industry, the ironworker industry was so interested in it is because when you get a young apprentice at 18, 19 years old, they want to wear the tool belt the way they want to wear it to look mm-hmm. cool or whatever it is. Right. And the older guys that know, know about this, will say, look, you can't set your tool belt up that way. You're not going to have good balance. This can't be done. That can be done. And it's sort of like they blow them off. So mm-hmm. this experiment showed them quantitatively and qualitatively, there really is something to this. Mm-hmm. And we can show that to you. That's interesting. So did the older guys, had they evolved in the direction that turned out to be uh, more suitable from a research standpoint? Had, it, had that been kind of the natural evolution of how they well, there's a case where you go in the field and you observe those things and try to explain it analytically mm-hmm. by by scientific method. And the answer is yes. They evolved, and in fact, they survived. Mm-hmm. They're survivors. Absolutely. And their job is to try to convince the youngsters, hey, there is something to do. This. I know I look old. <laughs> I know I look stupid to you. But but let these engineers show you what, what this really is about and convince you that what we're saying is true. They're mm-hmm. proving it mm-hmm. a different way besides me just – telling you to do this. Mm-hmm. And so um, I know a large part of the audience that we are speaking with are in the construction sector. And, and much of your work, obviously, because of the engineering position, is, is 
is done in the construction sector. What, um, I don't want to ask too general a question, but what, what types of things have you observed just over the last few years, a few projects about construction that would be important but simple fixes for folks in the industry? I know there are lots of small businesses, a lot of smaller contractors out there. I work with many of them. And it seems to be that, you know, sprains and strains and aging is we've kind of this general description that we've come up with for, you know, just breaking down perhaps. What, what, what can they be doing? What should they be doing? I mean, you've talked about stress and different gait, um, different, you know, ways of using your tools. I mean, that, that's, that's not even a question, man. But what, what, what can you tell us about what your findings are in the construction sector with regard to that survival that you've just described? Well, I think, and Kelly, chime in here wherever you want, because you know, you know Corey Lyons as well as I do. Um, it really starts at the top. It's the same things we know as IH, ergo, human factor safety people. It mm -hmm. starts at the top. It's the, the leadership beats the drum. If it's important to them, and it, it has equal weight with productivity, it'll get done that way. They will walk the talk. It's kind of like if you're advising everyone to wear a mask and you're the leader, then you wear a mask too. You lead right. from the front. Right. But those good old fashioned principles of solid servant, walk the talk, leadership and management are important. The second thing is the criticality of first line supervision. The superintendents, the foremen that are out there, what they demand in terms of professional work practices, work product, and doing it safely day by day, hour by hour is absolutely critical. It's all again about leadership and management. And then finally, I think locus of control plays into this. It's a psychological concept. And we've had a number of project managers and constructions, uh, construction company folks come to class and say, you know, I'll ask them, I'll say, what, what's the one thing if you had the magic wand that you could change on your construction sites today that is related to safety and health, what would it be? And they will tell you, I wish we could get workers to care as much about themselves as we do about them. Mm -hmm. And our, our theory is that there are a lot of construction workers who really don't believe inside their head that they have control over these things. And there is a psychological construct called locus of control. In fact, safety locus of control you can take a self-rated scale for that, and on a 24, 25-point scale, you can really self-report and find out where you're at. The people who tend to be the safest workers and have the best professional work practices are the ones who have high internal safety locus of control. They know that they can control outcomes. It doesn't come from somewhere else. And the folks that have trouble with this have lower internal locus of control. And so it's like, whatever happens, happens. It doesn't matter what I do. It's going to happen to me anyway. And I know this harkens back to some of the older concepts in safety theory, you know, the, the safe, the, the unsafe personality, but quite frankly, it's out there. Mm -hmm. And what we don't know is we don't know how far we can change somebody's low internal locus of control that kind of work needs to be done. Mm -hmm, absolutely. That, that's really interesting to me because I, I, I think there is, um, 
man, you, you've touched on a number of things there that are really critical, and I appreciate your saying those. You're, you're right. I think that um, leading by example is such a critical part of this. And expectations. I mean, if you establish clear, concise expectations of how you will be performing your work uh, from a safety standpoint, certainly, and, and hold people accountable to those expectations, yourself included, they are going to follow along with that. It's when the when the expectations become somewhat vague or inconsistent that we find ourselves having these problems. But I do think there's a, you know, I, I am basically a nucleic acid biochemist by education, a geneticist. And I think there is kind of a, a, a genetic predisposition to that, that risk tolerance or that locus of control that you're describing, that there are certain personalities that it's not really necessarily a choice, I don't think. That's just how they are wired to either believe that they do have that control or, or don't have that control. And so to modify that is going to be and, and has shown itself to be kind of an interesting challenge because um, I, I run into that every day out in, in the facilities that I'm in. I, I see people that that they take control of those things. They they understand that as individuals they, they have a – they have, if not significant, the primary control over those things. And others, as you said, they just kind of let it come to them. Well, you know, it doesn't really matter what I do. It's going to be what it's going to be. And that, that really is an interesting challenge. It's the old nature-nurture argument. Yeah, that, that is interesting. Kelly, what, 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 um, those are interesting com- comments. What, what take-home message would you offer a construction company or a, the owner of a small company what 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 kind of things should, should they be thinking about as they, you know, as they not only encourage but uh, assist their employees in working safely? You know, we offer a self-assessment to determine your locus of control, and we have all of our students take it. I think that self-awareness is important. Um, we've also done with small local companies, had them take the owls and larks test to determine kind of sleep patterns, circadian rhythms, and what types of shifts they would prefer. Um, but understanding who you are and what is going to work best for you and how you can work with your management team to know who, who's working for you. Um, but with that locus of control, we found that by showing students what their own locus of control is and then talking to them about what internal locus of control means and showing them statistics, sometimes we can convince them to shift their thought process a little bit and start taking more accountability for their own actions. And um, we've had students that then we give them a copy of the assessment and they can take that to their companies and we hope that it'll grow. Interesting. That that would be- We also talk about the neurological development, particularly in young males. We know in construction and other types of hazardous industries, the males between 18 and 24 are pretty risky. Mm -hmm. And we know neurologically that their brain, particularly the parts of the brain, the frontal lobe and the the temporal lobes, develop at a slower rate than in females. And, of course, anthropologists would explain why that's so Mm -hmm. in their theories. But, But we warn them. We say, you're dangerous because of your ability to determine risk based on your brain development. Mm -hmm. That's why your insurance rates are high until you hit about 24 and your, your female friends have got better insurance rates at at a younger age because we know statistically that their risk making capability is much better earlier in their development. We think managers need to know that too. Leaders need to know about that. And if we can just temper the behavior Raise, like Kelly says, raise the level of self-awareness about 
the individual that you can offset some of that. You can, you can, you can get through it. You can get there with less problems. Mm-hmm. And we're the only, the only discipline in the engineering college that does this right now. We've been doing this for more than 25 years. We have a whole series of self rating type scales that are validated instruments that help our construction management and construction engineers understand who they are and what makes them tick and how they're going to develop psychologically and physically as they move into later adulthood. We that, really take a human factors approach. Yeah, to this that, whole that is fascinating. And, and we could do an entire episode on that, if not more. And I would love to dig into that a little bit more that that is really interesting. And the truth is I have a 23 year old and a 21 year old son. Um, and they are exactly in that category that you just described. Uh, they are unique risk takers. They, you know, my older boy is, um, he lives out in Colorado. He's a climber. He's a longboarder. So he skates down the mountain on a skateboard at about 60 miles an hour. He's climbing. I mean, he's just, his risk tolerance is incredible. I don't, you know, uh, drives me crazy to some extent. I was telling Sasha earlier, and you probably have experienced this, as a safety professional, you know, I see risk everywhere and just about everything that I do or see is, you know, I, I, I'm doing a risk analysis and I, I watch my boys and I just think, oh my gosh. Now, the one of the older boy is actually looking at going into uh, construction type of careers and I'm terrified for him and his future employer, frankly. You know, Kelly, you need to invite Doug into your human factors and productivity class. I would love to participate in some of this. Love to see it being done. I would like to take the test. I mean, we got a whole set of tests for you. Oh, perfect. (laughs) I would love to take the test. That's fascinating. And and again, maybe we can on another, uh, another time we can talk more about this because I think that is real. The the self-awareness that you commented on, I think is truly critical, a really an important element of what we do. Uh, I'd like to learn more about it. Guys, we're kind of running up on our time. Um, we didn't even scratch the surface of what you sent me, Terry. Uh, maybe we can visit some of these in the future, but thank you guys so much for spending some time with me today. I I find it fascinating. Um, I look forward to, um, working for one of you at some point in the future as a graduate student. So, um, Terry, what, what's your timetable, man? Are you going to be doing this for a while? Well, all I can tell you is that, um, (laughs) Uh, a year ago, uh, this last August, my dad retired, finally. Your father retired a year ago? Yeah, and two two weeks ago, he turned 97. Oh, my. So you're in it for the long haul. Yeah, I'm in it for the long haul. And, and Kelly is my protege. She she knows that when I kick the bucket, she gets all my books. Oh, nice. <laughs> I'm, so I'm sure a, you have a quite a library. people coming along to keep this going. Yeah, and Fantastic. The, it's all in very good hands, I'm, particularly Kelly. So I'm sure that's fantastic, guys. Thank well, you very I much. Had an incredible mentor in Terry, and he he's done some amazing things over the course of his career, and he's still going to do some more pretty incredible things. So. Well, I have to admit, you know, um, when I first I, I've done a little bit of expert witnessing, and when I first started to do that, Terry was gracious enough to share with me, you know, like his um, just his rates, you know, how he actually priced expert witness activities, and he sent me his CV. I, I think I actually threw my back out picking your CV up. I don't know if, it's, it's got to be 500 pages of, um, 
you know, you've had a very prolific career so far, and if you're going to go to 97, there's quite a bit more to come, it sounds like. I'm not going to 97. I think he's <laughs> been awfully hard-headed. But I can tell you that my dad still has all his marbles, and he's bored to death. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, retirement was a bad idea. That was a little yeah, too early for him. Yeah, not in his, his realm. Isn't that interesting? Well, that's probably, you know, where you get it. You have, you know, you've gotten it from uh, – someone who's been doing it himself. So It's those genetics again, Doug. It is. Guys, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Kelly, it's a pleasure to see you again. And uh, Terry, man, always, buddy, I enjoy I enjoy time speaking with you. I hope Hopefully we can um, do this again because I would love to learn more about some of these things, and I'm sure the listeners would as well. So have a great weekend, and uh, I'll be in touch. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Doug. You're welcome. Thank you. Bye-bye.